Let's start in your Bibles in Acts chapter 1, and we're going to look at a well-known verse, verse 8, and then the text is going to be from Acts 11, but I want you to understand the foundation for the events of Acts 11, and so this is going to be one of those messages with a, with a long introduction and then uh, hopefully a shorter uh, outline, otherwise we're going to be here a really long time. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, and I I believe you know this verse, but follow along as I read out loud. Jesus said to his apostles, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So that's the the, uh, command that uh, Jesus leaves with his apostles, that they're going to be witnesses. And we read in Luke some of the things that they were going to be a witness to, that Jesus had died, that he was buried, and that three days later he was alive, that he rose from the dead, his resurrection. So they were witnesses. This is a continuation of of the series, just a short series I started last week. Let's get to work. What is it that we are going to do? Last week we talked about glorying in understanding and knowing God. And uh, this week we're going to look at the Antioch model. Uh, what, What did that church do? How did that church grow? How did that church progress? How did that church move forward? Let me begin by asking you, how many of you have read through the entire book of Acts at some point in your life? Okay, great. Then uh, some of this is going to be a a, a review for you as we sort of walk through the book of Acts to get to uh, chapter 11. By the way, I hope you brought your Bible today. Hope you bring your Bible every time we meet. That's where that is our textbook. And uh, bring a pen, bring a uh, a notebook, or there's a a half sheet of paper in your bulletin where you can keep notes. I know I'm looking forward tonight to having. Brother Nelson Dorr preached to us. I'm going to bring my notebook. I'll take notes tonight when he preaches. I I encourage you to do that because it helps you remember the material. And I think as we remember the material, it helps us to implement it. I I wish we could just start in Acts 1-1 and just go verse by verse and preach through the book until we got to Acts 11, uh, verse 19, but that would take a really long time. (laughs) And I want to get right to Acts 11, because it's an exciting passage, and uh, you'll see why in a minute. So what we're going to do is just sort of jump around here for, uh, or jump through the book, uh, skip over some some things that happen. And uh, we talked about the command. The command is to be witnesses. Uh, Notice that both in Luke, which we read, and in Acts 1-8, it talks about starting at Jerusalem. In Acts 1.8, it specifically says they're to go on to Judea, and then to Samaria, and then to the uttermost part of the earth. Let me sort of break that down just quickly for you. Um, uh, Jerusalem, of course, is the city that they're in, and it's the center of Jewish life. And now, many of Jesus' apostles were from Galilee, so it's not really their hometown, but that's where they were. That's where Jesus had been crucified. They buried him there in a tomb, and he rose again. He, many people there who lived in Jerusalem saw Jesus after his resurrection, and these apostles were going to start there in Jerusalem. Now, the area immediately surrounding the city would have been Judea, that's the the province, and that would also have had a lot of Jews in it, people that were ethnically similar, culturally similar to the apostles and those folks in Jerusalem. So if we might uh, just use an analogy, our city would be Elmira and, and Vacaville, this area, and our Judea would be like California, right? I mean, there are some different places in California, but uh, gen- generally, Californians, you know, we all understand each other. But then there's a, they're asked to go third place is to Samaria. Samaria is not filled with Jews. Samaria is filled with Samaritans. And Samaritans are the worst of all people in Jewish eyes because they're half-breeds. They were Israelites, and then when a king brought in heathen people, non-Israelites, into the land to replace the Israelites, they began to adopt some, but not all, or modify, if you will, Jewish practices. They had their own way of worship. They had their own holy book, and they were Samaritans. And so the Jews looked down on Samaritans. So when Jesus said to them, you're going to start out in Jerusalem, they would have said, yeah, that makes sense. And then you're going to go to Judea. Yeah, that makes sense. And then you're going to be witnesses in Samaria. There was probably some of them that thought, Now, that doesn't make sense. Why would we go tell those people? But the truth is, the Bible says God so loved the world. 
we don't have just a God for Americans or a God just of conservative people or a God just for people like us. When I was in Mongolia, they're polytheists, so they have a lot of gods. And often they'd say, oh, you're talking about the God of Americans. And I'd say, no, no, no. (laughs) No, no, no. This God isn't the God of all the Americans. He is the God of the Bible. He is the God who created the heaven and the earth. So the God we serve isn't limited geographically. He's not limited ethnically or culturally. And then he says to the uttermost part of the earth, and that's where we're going to get to um, um, uh, <laughs> Acts chapter 11. That's, that isn't the only uttermost part of the earth, but they've moved beyond their, their culture, the Jewish culture. They've moved into Samaria, and finally they're going to move into other cultures as well. But the command is specifically to be a witness. Now, I want you to understand this because a witness does not require any specialized training to be a witness. Now, if you've ever been in a court setting, you may know of a, they call some people expert witnesses and they do need some specialized training. But God doesn't call us to be expert witnesses. He calls us to be witnesses. A witness is someone who just tells what he's seen. He needs to be truthful. And he needs to be in his place in court or whatever to to give his testimony. But he just tells people what he's seen. He doesn't need to make anything up. He doesn't even really need to understand what he's seen. He just needs to tell it. Uh, This this is a a, a, a made-up story, but of a a driver driving down a road, much like Hawkins Road here in, in the Elmira area. And he was driving down the road, and he wasn't paying attention. And a cat ran out in front of his car, and he ran over the cat. And he felt terrible, and there was one house nearby. He thought, well, maybe the cat belongs to the, the people that live in that house. So he pulled over to the side of the road, and he went back to the house, and he knocked on the door, and a kind lady answered the door, and, you know, how are you doing? And fine. He said, I, I think I might have run over your cat. The lady says, well, I have quite a few cats. What did this cat look like? And the man went, <laughs> she said, no, 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 no. No, no, what did the cat look like before you ran him over? And she went, what is this man doing? He's just telling you what he's seen. Now, he's got it all wrong. Okay, that's not the question. He's not answering the lady's question. But that's what a witness does. He just tells people what he's seen. Now, what is it? I'm going to ask a rhetorical question here. I'm not looking for a response. But what is it that the apostles had seen? They had seen Jesus die. They knew that those Romans, that a Roman soldier had taken a spear, pierced his side, and that out came water and blood. They knew that. They had witnessed him buried. And then they had seen him alive again. That's what they're witnesses of. Now, the truth is, you and I have not seen that. We've read about it. And by faith, we know it is true. I, I don't dispute that. But what we have seen is we've seen God's work in our lives. We've seen God's work in the lives of people around us, maybe children or or parents or a spouse. We've seen God's work in the lives of each other. That's why our times of praise and testimony are so exciting to me. Because it reminds me that God's at work here at Elmira Baptist Church. Now, I don't know about you, but there are times when life doesn't seem to be going my way. And it doesn't appear that God is very close to me. It feels like God is distant. And maybe even it feels like, notice I, it has never happened before, but it feels like maybe God has forgotten about me. But then I come and I talk with you and I'm reminded God is still at work. Just because I don't see it right in my day, in, in my immediate uh, periphery here, my immediate vision here, doesn't mean that God is no longer at work. So we're called to be witnesses too, yes, of what the Bible tells us about Jesus' death, burial and resurrection, but also about what God has done in our lives. Now again, a rhetorical question. Those of you that have read through the book of Acts, do the apostles immediately begin to obey this command to be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth? And the answer is no. No, initially they just stay there in Jerusalem. And boy, they see great results in Jerusalem, don't they? One day, 3,000 people are saved. Another day, it says 5,000 people are saved. And in between those two, it says that multitudes were saved. I mean, they're seeing results there in Jerusalem. And maybe it was in the back of their mind that they started to think, you know what? (laughs) 
Things are going so well right here. We just need to stay and focus our ministry, our attention on this city. I don't know, but I do know this. The command in Acts 1.8 is to be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and then to the uttermost part of the earth. And they're not doing that. So what did God, again, rhetorical question, those of you that have read the book of Acts, what did God do to move his people out of Jerusalem so that they would go be witnesses elsewhere? And the answer is in Acts 8, verse 1. So go with me to Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. You know the story in Acts 6 and 7, particularly the end of 6 and all of 7, is the story of Stephen, who is killed for his faith. We often count him as the first Christian martyr. Not the last, by any means, but the first Christian martyr. He stood for truth. He spoke truth to the council, to the Jewish council. And they got so angry that they stoned him and they killed him by throwing stones, rocks at him. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says, And Saul was consenting. Saul is another character. Later on, he's going to be called Paul. Another character here in the book of Acts. Um, Saul was consenting unto his, that is Stephen's death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. It's as if God said, you know what, I, I think you've missed the point. You were, you've been ignoring the command to begin at Jerusalem, but go on to other places. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to send some persecution and I'm going to move you on. Now, some of you remember a couple of weeks ago, Matt Galvin was with us. He preached about the plagues of Egypt and asked the question several times, how much will it take? What will it take for you to obey God? You know what, I've learned it's much better to obey God before he sends persecution, before he sends trouble, before he stirs up the nest. And I, I, I seriously believe, my, my heart is, that I want us to be witnesses because we love God. Not because life has become really hard and we realize, boy, we've got to do something different. But they had ignored the command and persecution came. And in Acts chapter 8, they do the first thing, they go to Samaria. And in Acts chapter 8, they start to preach there in Samaria. And guess what? The Samaritans, of all people, the Samaritans come to faith in Jesus Christ. And they're baptized and they begin a church there in, in uh, uh, Samaria. So they begin to obey this command. And in Acts chapter 11, again, I, we're just sort of jumping through the Bible here. Acts chapter 11 and verse 19, this is our text for today. Acts chapter 11 and verse 19, it says, Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phinehas and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. So notice the beginning there. Now they that were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen. So we saw in verse chapter 8, verse 1, that there was this persecution and they were scattered. And some of those people just happen to travel all the way to Antioch. Antioch is a long way, especially if you're walking. Antioch is a long way from Jerusalem. But they got all the way up there. And notice what they began to do in, in, in verse 20. It says, And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Then verse 22, Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas, that he should go as far as Antioch, who, when he was come, who, when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad, and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they should cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. We saw him at chapter 8, verse 1. What's happened between there and here is that he's become a Christian. Then he went to, um, uh, 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 Ant, uh, Barnabas went to Tarsus for to seek Saul, verse 26. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Let's pray, and then we're going to look at this text together. Father, thank you for this reminder to us to uh, be witnesses, not to be expert testimony, 
not to give expert testimony, simply to tell people what we know from your word and what we've experienced as your grace has been poured out into our lives. And so, Father, again, I'm asking you to focus our attention, to focus our minds on your word, to push out the the busyness of the week, to push out the other thoughts that would crowd in and prevent us from, from seeing your word with our own eyes. And then, Holy Spirit, that you'd use your word in our hearts to change us into the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you. You're, you're such a good God. We, we want to serve you. We want to be witnesses. But often there's hindrances. And I'm asking that this morning, this message would help us remove those hindrances so that we could be wholehearted, loving witnesses to the work you've done in our lives and the lives of those around us. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So let's look here at the Antioch model. There was going to be a map, but you can look at a map when you get home. The Antioch model, the first thing I want you to note that these people do is in verse 20. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were coming to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians. Now, what did they do different than the previous groups had done initially? Well, look with me at verse 19 again. And now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phinehas and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. Initially, even as they were scattered, initially they would come to a town and they'd ask people there, you know, is there, are there Jews here? Is there a synagogue here? Probably would be one of their questions. They would find out where that was. They'd find out where the Jews were. And those are the people that they'd preach to. But these people did something different. It said, again, in verse 20, they spake unto the Grecians. They started talking to people who were not Jews. They started talking to people that weren't the same culture as they were. They weren't even the same ethnic group as they were. They just talked to them. Notice it uses the word talk. The the Greek word there means to talk, right? Just talk to people. Now, I don't know about you, but there are a lot of people who like to talk. Maybe you're one of them. The question is, what do you talk about? Yeah, do you talk about the football season that's kicking off? Are you talking about the baseball season that's closing up? Is your talk about economics and whether the uh, country's going to go into a recession or whether we're going to grow some more? I I don't know. Do you like to talk about uh, uh, international politics? The uh, tension between the United States and China? They're having a G20 summit, but... Xi Jinping didn't go. Is that, is that the type of thing you'd like to talk about? Some people like to talk about the books they've read. And uh, I've got some friends like that. They're always recommending me a good book. Oh, you'd really like this book. Here's why you would like this book. What were these people talking about when they talked to the Grecians? It says, into verse 20 again, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. These folks were talking to everyone. That was different. Again, before the, 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 the Christians had really only talked to Jews, with the exception of the work there in Samaria. They'd only talked to the Jews. But here's a group that said, hey, let's just talk to everyone. Let me encourage you as a Christian to talk to everyone. Now, it's not always comfortable. Even in this last week, I've met people that just the way that they're dressed and the way they present themselves and the way they look, I'm not really sure what to say to them. They don't look like me. They don't act like me. I get a very distinct feeling that they don't like me. Because I look different than them and I act different than them. And so what's the temptation? Well, I won't won't talk to that person. One time I was getting into my car in Mongolia and these two guys got in my car. They didn't ask me. They got in my car. And I realized that they had both been drinking and uh, they were not completely sober. They weren't so drunk that they were unintelligible. I could understand what they were saying to me, and evidently they could understand what I was saying to them. They said, we need a ride. And part of me thought, you know what? I just want these guys out of my car. I'm just going to yell, get out of my car. And then I thought, you know what I could do? While we're taking this ride, I can talk to them about Jesus. Do you see the opportunities you have to talk as an opportunity to talk about Jesus? Even if the people are, well, not completely sober, even if the people don't look like you, maybe they don't speak English the way you speak English, do you still see that as an opportunity? 
I was reading a, uh, a letter was sent to me this week. It was a fundraising letter, but this is a, a group that works with um, uh, people in prisons around the United States. And this one prisoner had been moved to a medical facility. I don't know that it was here in California. The, the, the letter didn't say, but he'd been moved to a medical facility because of his medical needs. And while he was there, he heard about Jesus and he became a Christian. Well, those of you that work in the medical, have worked in the medical facility as correctional officers know that they don't stay there. If they get better, if their, their symptoms get better, they're moved back into the general population. And so they said to this guy, hey, uh, his name was Rick. They said, hey, Rick, it's, your time here is growing short. We're going to move you back into the general population. And for him, that was a scary prospect. The, the letter did not, um, did not detail why that was scary to him. But at first they said he was scared. I'm going to be moved back into the general population. But he'd become a Christian there in the medical facility, and all of a sudden it was as if the Holy Spirit said, yes, you're going to have more opportunities to talk to people now. And instead of seeing it as something to be scared of, he saw it as his mission field. What's your mission field? Where is it that you talk to people? Now, there may be a few people here, you rarely say some, anything all week. Coming to church and being with these people is the most talking you do all week. And maybe that you're good with that. Maybe Monday through Saturday you have no desire to talk. But there's a lot of us that Monday through Saturday we talk to a lot of people. What do you talk about? These people were preaching Jesus. Wherever they went, it said they talked to the Grecians preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, there is two words for preach in the New Testament. One is the idea of getting up and proclaiming, you know, talking to a big group. That's not this word here. This is the same Greek word from which we get our word to evangelize. So as they go about their day, you know, they, they meet someone and, and they want to buy something in a market. Now, they're not going to have, sorry, Roy, I know, give, just give me five minutes here. They're, gonna, they're not going to have a, a, a grocery store, right? They're going to have a market. The person may have a stall with some fruit. And as they're buying fruit, you know what they say? Hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Now, did they give them a track? Probably not. Printing hasn't been invented. They're not going to write it on, right? But, but they're saying, let me tell you about Jesus. Then they go over here, and uh, maybe they're, they're, they're trying to rent a place to live. Because remember, they're running for their lives. They left their home behind in Jerusalem. They need a place to live. And they're trying to rent a place. And they say to this guy who's offering a place to rent, they say to the landlord, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Just whoever they're talking to, they said, they, they spake to the Grecians, preaching Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that you should never go out and knock on people's doors in an effort to talk to them about Jesus. Please do that. And also talk to Jesus, talk about Jesus to everyone that you talk to during the week. More than once, I've been standing in line at the store, which is my least favorite thing to do. I really want to give the store money and leave. And they won't let me leave because they don't want to take my money as quickly as I want to give it to them. And I'm standing there in line. And someone around me has the nerve to, to start a conversation with me. Maybe they say something like, can you believe how long these lines are? Can you believe how cold it is, how hot it is? There's a part of me, there's a human part of me that wants to say, listen, I'm just in line here. I don't really want to talk to you. I don't know you. But maybe that's my opportunity to say, you know, you're right. And let me tell you about Jesus. What are they going to do? Run out of line? I don't think so. <laughs> Talk to everyone and just tell them about Jesus. This is, here's my point here. This Antioch model does not involve a bunch of organization. Okay, you go here and you go there, and I need you to, and you must come at this time. Oh, well, I can't come at that time. Okay, well, then you can't be involved. This model involves you talking with anybody, and as you're talking with them, you're going to tell them about Jesus. Now, what are some reasons? I, I was thinking to myself, this seems so easy. What are some reasons that we don't do this? Well, the, the reason that comes up in the text already is this idea of prejudice. The Bible calls it respect of persons. This idea that, well, I can't talk to that person because they're so different than me. That's where we started out in verse 19, where they only were talking to Jews in these other places they went to. It wasn't until they got to Antioch that they realized, oh, you know what? We can talk to everybody. Let me remind you, you can talk to everybody. Solano County is a great place for, for missions work, and here's why. Because you meet so many different ethnic groups, and you don't even have to leave the county. 
I understand Vallejo is one of the most diverse cities in the whole United States, as far as culturally diverse. Now, don't see that as a threat. See that as God blessing us by bringing people to us. I've been out meeting people, and I've met people who are Afghanis. How many of you want to go to Afghanistan and try to preach the gospel? But they're right here. You don't have to go to Afghanistan. There's a lady I know. She's Persian. She came from Iran. I don't think you would want to go to Iran right now to preach the gospel. But you can talk to her. Maybe your neighbors from some country way far away. Here's the blessing. You don't have to get on an airplane and fly to that country to preach Christ to a different cultural group. You can talk to your neighbor. And guess what? Your neighbor probably knows some English because they live here in the United States. Now, every once in a while, someone will come to me and say, hey, I've got a neighbor. They don't speak English. Listen, if you find out what language your neighbor speaks, I will find someone to speak that language and go to them. We can pray about it. Hey, we need a... um, you know, push ten speaker to speak to this Afghani guy. The Afghani guy I met, he spoke English. But l- let's imagine that's what it is. We can pray about that. Let's not see cultural diversity as a problem to be avoided. Let's see it as an opportunity to preach the gospel and talk to everybody. Sometimes we we don't start even start to witness because we're trying to get the whole gospel in at one time. But do you remember what Paul said? He said, I planted and Apollos watered and God gave the increase. Sometimes you may only get in a verse. Maybe you'll just get in a sentence or two about Jesus and then the person leaves or the person shuts it down. I don't want to talk to you about this. That's fine. Our job is not to save people. By the way, you'll never save anybody. I never have saved anybody. My job is to be a witness, to start talking to everybody about Jesus. And I can't tell you how many times I have the, the, just the amazing privilege of hearing somebody pray and, and talk to God and tell them that they're a sinner and that they need forgiveness and they're asking God for eternal life. And then I find out later, I'm like the 14th person that's talked to them about this. And the other 13 people, they said, no, 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 Yes. Listen, it doesn't matter whether you're the 14th person or if you're person number seven or you're person number one. God's keeping track. And I think that all 14 of those people have some rewards in heaven for just being a witness. Talk to people. Tell them about Jesus. It's baseball season. I got to use a baseball illustration here. Some of you have heard the term small ball. It's a strategy in baseball. You just try to get your first batter on base. He could even bunt to get on base, but you just try to get him on base. And then if he's a speedy guy, you try to have him steal second base. And if you get him to second base, then you definitely, you can bunt, you can sacrifice fly, you want to get him to third base. And you might only get one or two runs in inning that way. Now, if you watch professional baseball, I, don't, I can't think of a team this year that's a small ball team. They're all swinging for the fences. They want a home run or they don't want anything. And I'm exaggerating a little bit for effect. You know, sometimes we can do that as as a witness. We don't don't want to witness to someone unless they're really interested in the gospel. Unless they're going to give us 15, 20, 30 minutes of their time. You may not get 15, 20, 30 minutes. But you can be a witness in 15 seconds. Hey, I'm a Christian. Do you know Jesus Christ? No, I don't want to talk about that. Okay, that's fine. Listen, what you've done is you've planted the seed. Hey, did you know that the Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life? And the person says, I don't believe that stuff. You know what? That doesn't matter what they believe. What matters is you were a witness talking to people and preaching Jesus. Sometimes we don't preach Jesus because we're afraid. Now let me ask you a question. Again, rhetorical question. What were these people... In Acts 11, verse 19, what were they running away from? They were running away from literal persecution. There were people trying to throw them in jail just because they believed Jesus. There were people who wanted to kill them. Now, you would think that if they were right-thinking human beings, 
They would say, people are trying to jail us. People are trying to kill us for Jesus' sake. You know what? I just won't tell anybody. Because I could get in trouble. Is that what these folks did? No, no. They spake to the Grecians preaching to them Jesus. It didn't matter that they had just run away from persecution. Now, let's be frank. We don't have persecution here in the United States. I cannot remember the last time I got in trouble with the law for preaching Jesus. Okay, yeah, maybe your coworker doesn't like you because you preach Jesus. Maybe your neighbor avoids you because you preach Jesus. That's hardly persecution. Let's not allow fear to keep us from preaching Jesus. Sometimes it's just plain laziness. We're just lazy. We have opportunity. We see our neighbor across the street. He's out there cutting his yard. He's not going anywhere anyway. I could go talk to him, but I just don't feel like it. Don't let laziness keep you from preaching Jesus. But I think for most of us, the number one reason that we don't spend more time talking with people and preaching Jesus is because we're busy. Now, I don't mean we're busy like we never talk to anybody. We talk to a lot of people. We're so busy with our own thoughts, it never occurs to us that we could tell this person about Jesus. Don't be too busy to talk about Jesus. Ask God, when you, when you start your day, or maybe some of you take your time at night to talk to God, whatever time of the day you, you spend with God, during that time you spend with God, why don't you ask him to open your eyes to the opportunities you have to talk about Jesus in the next 24 hours? Jesus said to his disciples, I need you to look up because the fields, they are white to harvest. You say, Jesus said to his disciples, you say four more months. And then, no, he said, listen, right now the fields are white to harvest. So I wrote that down on my prayer list. And I said, do I, the fields are white to harvest. Do I believe it? Because if I believe it, I'm going to be looking for opportunities to talk about Jesus with people. Just talk to everyone. You say, well, what kind of person I'm looking, what am I looking for? Someone who is breathing. <laughs> Someone who can hear you. That it's, you're not looking for a special person. Sometimes I think we get this idea, you know, we're going to go through and it's like going to, all of a sudden a light's going to shine on this person and that's the person we're going to witness to. Just tell everybody. They spake to the Grecians and they, and they preached Jesus. And what happens? Okay, back to your Bible there, verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. There were a lot of people saved. There were so many people saved. It was such a big deal, especially Gentiles, Grecians getting saved. It was such a big deal that when the church of Jerusalem heard about it, they said, we got to send somebody to find out what's going on and to keep this moving in the right direction. And so they sent Barnabas. And it says in verse 22, Then tidings of these things came into the ears of the church, which is in Jerusalem. And they sent forth Barnabas that he should go uh, as far as Antioch. Notice verse 23, Who when he came and had seen the grace of God. Don't overlook that. These changed lives, these people who were coming to faith in Jesus Christ, Gentiles who all their life had worshipped a bunch of false gods, all their lives they had made sacrifices to idols. They didn't know the Old Testament. They didn't know the promises of a Messiah. They were looking forward to a Christ. And now they're suddenly saved Barnabas said, boy, you guys have done a great job, didn't he? It's not what he said at all. It said that he saw God's grace. Now, it's my job, it's your job to just tell everyone and preach Jesus. It's God's job to save them. It's God's grace that's going to change their life. Sometimes I know, I talk to Christians, they say, well, I'm just not really sure what to say. I'll, I'll be frank, I don't know what to say half the time. I'm not that smart. I don't know this. A lot of times, if you're meeting someone for the first time or even the second or the third time, I don't know all their background. I don't know all their history. I'm just going to preach Jesus because it's my job. Remember what's the command? Be a witness. Tell people what you know. And it's God's job to save them. Amen. Never. Lost my notes here. There it is. Never think that you can accomplish anything without God's grace. Our church, Elmira Baptist Church, is never going to accomplish anything without God's grace. 
let's never pat ourselves on the back and say, hey, we're doing such a good job. Let's be grateful for God's work in our lives. Yes. Let's be grateful when people get saved and baptized. Yes. But it's God's grace. We're just doing our job. We're just a witness. We're just telling people what we know. And God's grace is the essential component, the essential ingredient in life change. And secondly, never think that you can do it without God's grace. And secondly, always be grateful for God's grace in your own life. Because you know what? We begin to think we're pretty good people. I'm not a good person. I just have a lot of God's grace been poured into my life. I'm so grateful that God saved me and protected me from evil and wickedness. I'm not better than some other guy in this town. It's God's grace. And Barnabas saw that. You know, what Barnabas saw, Barnabas got up there and he thought to himself, and I'm, 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 I'm adding a human element. I'm taking my mind and adding it to the text here. But you see that he saw the grace of God. He started thinking, you know, why is it that these people, why is it that these Christians weren't content just to talk to the Jews, but they felt like they should talk to the Gentiles too? And you know what the answer is? God's grace. It was the grace of God that motivated them to talk to people who were not culturally like them, who were not ethnically the same as them. Barnabas probably thought, how is it that these people who were running from Jerusalem, they were fleeing Jerusalem because their very lives were in danger, how is it that they have the boldness to keep talking about Jesus here in Antioch? And you know what he saw? God's grace. The grace of God that enabled them to overcome fear. Surely the believers there in Antioch, the ones who were running for their lives from Jerusalem, surely they were busy. They had things to do. They had to make a whole new life for themselves. Imagine if we had to flee California and move to another state. Don't you think you'd be busy? I think you'd be really busy. But they weren't too busy to be a witness. They weren't too busy to just talk to the Grecians and preach Jesus. And as Barnabas considered this, he, you know, he thought, I know what it is. It's God's grace that allowed these people to look past their busyness and see all these new opportunities, new conversations and new relationships, see all these as opportunities to be a witness. When Barnabas arrived in Antioch and he saw Gentiles who had all their life had been idolaters, who all their life have been making sacrifices to idols and suddenly they've left their idols behind and they've turned to the true and the living God. Barnabas didn't think, boy, these expert witnesses, we got to get them back to Jerusalem to teach this to the Jerusalem church. They know something we don't know. I, no, Barnabas didn't see that at all. Barnabas saw the grace of God. He said, I can see God's grace taking Gentiles and making them a part of God's church. And if I were Barnabas, and again, I'm, I'm adding a little bit here of what I'm thinking just to make it come alive to you. You know what the most spectacular miracle was here in the Antioch church? The most spectacular miracle in the Antioch church is that you had Jews and you had Gentiles worshiping together. You had Jews who had always rejected Gentiles and you had Gentiles who always thought the Jews were stuck up and weird. Now you had them worshiping together. Look with me at verse uh, 26. It says this. Uh, not Yes, 26. It came to pass. This is the middle of verse 26. It came to pass that a whole year they, this is Paul and Barnabas, Saul and Barnabas, assembled themselves with the church. Talking about Antioch again. Assembled themselves with the church. Who's the church? It's these Jewish believers who are running for their lives and end up in Antioch, combined with the people who lived in Antioch their whole lives who were Gentiles, and now they're worshiping together. And when Barnabas saw this, he said, that's the grace of God. That's why, hear me here, that's why we take time to pray. Because we need God's grace in our lives. We need God's grace in the lives of the people around us, whether it's your children or a spouse or parents, you know, some of you teenagers, I, I'm telling you what you need to do. You need to pray more for your parents. It's easy to complain. I remember being a teenager. I could tell you all my parents' faults when I was a teenager. <laughs> your parents need you to pray for them because they need God's grace. 
That's why we spend so much time in prayer. We, we, we desperately need God's grace. We should never think that we can accomplish anything as an individual or as a church without God's grace. And we should always be thankful, always be thankful that God is pouring his grace on us, on me, on the people around me, on our church. Oh, boy. One more point. I've actually got several more, but let me get to this one. So this is what Barnabas does. He sees these people. You've got Jews. You've got Gentiles. Now they're one. They're, they've become a church. They're assembling together. They're worshiping the same God. God's grace is being poured out. And this is what Barnabas tells them. Look with me uh, here at verse 22 and 23. Um, let me pick it up in the middle of 22. They sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch, verse 23, who, when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they should cleave unto the Lord. That with purpose of heart they should cleave unto the Lord. Barnabas called them to commitment. Don't let this be a one-day thing. Don't let this be a one-month thing. Don't let this be a, a, a one-year thing. I want you to commit to the, with purpose of heart to cleave, to hold fast to the Lord, to be just as close to the Lord as you can. Now, notice Barnabas didn't call them to commitment to the church, did he? He didn't call them to commitment to Barnabas or to Saul or to any man. He said, I want you to cleave to the Lord. I'm convinced... I'm convinced that this is the main reason that churches in the United States are struggling. Because we're committed to a lot of things, but we're not committed to the Lord. We, we, we come on Sunday mornings, particularly, some, some of us come Sunday night, a little bit more, uh, a few less of you come on, on Wednesday evenings to pray, even less on sun, Saturday mornings to pray. Why? Because we're not committed. We're distracted or we're busy, but we're not committed. And Barnabas says, I need you to be all in. I need you to be intentional Christians, and I need you to cleave to the Lord. What's your level of commitment to the Lord? Not to Elmira Baptist Church, and certainly not to me. Please, don't miss it. I'm not calling you to listen more to me. Be committed. To me. I'm talking, what is your level of commitment to the Lord? You can, one way, there's several ways. One of the ways you can measure your commitment to the Lord is how much time you spend with Him each day in His Word and in prayer and meditation. Because if you don't spend any time in those things, don't, please don't tell me you really love God and you're committed to Him. You've got 24 hours in the day. Now, some of it you spend sleeping, some of it you spend eating. I mean, you don't have 24 discretionary hours. But in those 24 hours, we all have time to spend with the Lord. If we're going to cleave to Him. If we're going to hold fast to Him. If we're going to be committed to Him. Here's another measure of commitment. How much do you talk about Him? How many of you have ever met a life insurance agent? What is the question that in the course of a conversation, that life insurance question is going to ask you? Do you have life insurance? And you know what the second question is going to be? Do you have enough life insurance? Boy, those guys are constantly thinking about life insurance. And whatever objection you have, I don't have money, whatever, they've got a, well, you could have term life, right? Oh, you could have whole life, you can have your whole life insurance policy. By the way, this is not investment advice. But they'll say, you can have your whole life insurance policy, fund your retirement. I'm buying life insurance that I get when I die. It's going to help me. In my, I don't get it. They spend a lot of time thinking about this. Let me tell you, if you're cleaving to the Lord, if you're holding fast to Him, if you're committed to Him, you're going to spend a lot of time thinking about Him. And it's going to come out in your speech. You're not going to be thinking, okay, now how do I work the Lord into this conversation? It's just going to come out because that's what you spend a lot of time thinking about. That's what's important to you. I used to have students in my class, they'd say, I can't memorize these geometry formulas. And I'd pick out some, this is years ago, so the one that was most common was Derek Jeter. Remember Derek Jeter? I'd say, what is Derek Jeter batting right now? And they'd give me his batting average. What's his on-base percentage? They'd give me his on-base percentage. 
I'd say, how can you memorize his batting average and his on-base percentage, but you can't memorize the geometry formulas? And the answer is they didn't care about geometry. They cared about baseball. They cared about Derek Jeter, but they don't care about geometry. And let me be candid. If we never talk about Jesus, how can we say we're committed to him? If it never enters our mind that our friend who's struggling in life, our friend who's got an addiction, our friend who is making choices that are bringing destruction to them, sinful choices, it never occurs to them that Jesus is, uh, excuse me, it never occurs to us that Jesus is the answer for them. How can we say we're committed? If we can't find time to be in his word and in prayer, if we can't find time to meet with God's people, how can we say we're committed? Look at verse 26 again with me. It came to pass, this is the middle of verse 26, it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves together with the church. Now, think about what that means. These people were committed to be there whenever the church assembled, which at least was on the first day of the week. They were committed to do that for a whole year. Now, if you're visiting today, please don't misunderstand me. But there are people, they come to Elmira Baptist Church. They say, hey, pastor, I love the Lord. I want to get involved. I want to be here. And then four weeks later, I don't even know where they are. I'll reach out. This has happened recently. I'll reach out. I'll text. I'll call. Nothing. I don't mean once or twice. I mean six, seven, eight times. Nothing. Just, I wonder if they died. How can you tell me I'm committed to the Lord, but boy, I give you three weeks. Now, I don't care if they go to another church. You don't have to serve the Lord here at Elmira. You can go to any church here in Vacaville that preaches the gospel and that loves God, and you can serve Him. I'm not saying you have to be here to be committed. I am saying you've got to be committed. And these people aren't going to another church. They're not going anywhere. All of a sudden, their level of commitment went from 100% to zero. That's not commitment. Commitment is expressed over time. Commitment isn't expressed in a day or two days. It's expressed over time. Everybody comes to the first practice of football season ready to win the championship. The question is whether they're on week two and week three and week four and you get to the end of the season and you're tired and you've lost a game or two and it doesn't appear that you've got a real clear shot to even get into the playoffs. It's those people that are committed. And I'm asking you as Christians to be committed, not to me, not to Elmira Baptist Church. I'm asking you to be committed to God. Our nation is not going to change based on how we vote. It's going to change when we're committed to the Lord, we tell everyone about Jesus, and God's grace changes people's hearts. Now, I'm not saying don't vote. You better vote. If you are in the 4th District here in Vacaville, you know we have an election for a um, school board member. Have you voted? This is the last week to get your vote in. I, I think you ought to vote. But don't deceive yourself that if we elect the right school board member, it'll change Vacaville. Because the only thing that'll change Vacaville is the grace of God. The only thing that's going to change me is the grace of God. The only thing that's going to change you is the grace of God. And when Barnabas came to this city, he said, I see the grace of God. When people come to Elmira Baptist Church, what do they see? Do they see the grace of God in your life, in my life? Do they experience God's grace here? Or could they? God's grace, we are are channels for it. The Bible says God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. We're channels for God's grace. And we cannot be effective channels for God's grace if we're not committed. You won't experience God's grace in your own life as fully as God intends, and the people around you won't experience God's grace flowing through your life as fully as God intends unless you are committed. Now, some of you are already committed, and every time I preach a sermon like this, somebody who's been committed, and they're here all the time, and they're constantly serving, they come and they say, Pastor, I need to be more committed, and if that's you, God bless you. But what about those of you who've not been committed? I I so wish that I could have made this commitment 
uh, 40 years ago, and I never have to make that commitment again. But commitment is a daily thing for the Christian. I can be committed 10 years ago. I can be committed 10 months ago. I can be committed 10 days ago. And today I can be living in the flesh. Some of you, you, you were committed. You, you know what it's like to have God's grace flowing into you and through you. You know what it's like for people to just see you and say, boy, that person has God's grace. But it's been a long time since you since that. I'm telling you, God has not changed. God's grace has not grown insufficient. You've grown cold. You just don't care. Maybe you've become busy. I, I don't know. I don't want to guess. But you know that there was a difference between where you were when you were committed and where you are today. Barnabas would say, hey, listen, I'm exhorting you. Be all in. Cleave to the Lord with purpose of heart. Some of you have never been committed. Maybe you didn't realize that Christianity called for commitment. Maybe you thought Christianity was something you participate in on Sundays and there's a, a rally, you know, and then you go back and Monday through Saturday you sort of just float around and flounder until the next Sunday when you can come back. No, no, no. The Christian life is a life of commitment. That's why Barnabas came. He saw the grace of God and he said, listen, I need to tell you something. I need to exhort you that with purpose of heart, you'll cleave to the Lord. A call to commitment. Elmira Baptist Church is a church that calls Christians to commitment. And I'm going to be kind. If you don't want to be committed to the Lord, you need to find a church that doesn't care. Because I care that you're committed. Now, I can give you time. I can be patient. Don't misunderstand. You want to think about it for a week or two? Go home. You pray. You think about it. You get in your Bible. You read. And if the Lord says, no, I don't need you to be committed, you are absolutely wrong. You are. But take your time. But once you figure it out, I want you to be committed today and tomorrow and the next day and say, God, for the rest of my life, every day I'm going to get up and start by saying, I'm committed to you. Whether you're here in Vacaville at Elmira Baptist Church or God moves you somewhere else and you're in another church, you're going to be committed to the Lord. It's a call to commitment. The Christian life is a call to commitment. Father, thank you for the uh, folks that we have and that you've given me, uh, given us as a church an amazing core of committed Christians, people I could call.